Hi, welcome to this episode of Career Conundrums. Today we'll have two related conundrums to tackle because they are both about confidence, or better said, the lack of it, and how it can continue to trouble us even later in our careers. So, Caroline, what's our first situation? Okay, here we go. Why am I a total mofo at home and such a people pleaser at work? At home, I can raise one eyebrow to my boys and they know they are in trouble. However, at work, I always seem to be the one that gets dumped on. I work long hours with little thanks. People get promoted over me. What am I doing wrong? Right. (laughs) Where do we start? There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) If you don't know what a mofo is, look it up online in urban slang. So, people pleaser versus mofo. What, <sighs> why is home and work different? We're still the same person. Why is it different? Well, because home is our environment, isn't it? In general, we are the boss. We set the boundaries. We set the rules. And we feel confident. And we, hopefully, not everyone, not every day, not in every environment, but we, you know, we feel we have the respect of our employees, Annoying and small and children shaped as they are. <laughs> or dog shaped. Yeah, or dog shaped or partner shaped or whatever shape. No, I mean, we're just, we're just more confident, aren't we? We know where we are. And I think also, funnily enough, it can go the other way around too. Some people yeah. are people pleasers at home, but they've totally got it locked down at work. That is but it, very true. But it's about power, right? And comfort and yeah, confidence. definitely. I mean, in this scenario, it's about people pleasing at work and there are lots of things with this about you know ability to say no and you know ability to negotiate the workspace and I do think that particularly women of our age we have either not developed the skills or we just don't have the confidence to be assertive in the workplace and that's something that we have we've learned from early you know role modeling from other people in our lives mm-hmm. and also from working in male dominated environment mm-hmm. may i say the word patriarchy <laughs> <laughs> not blaming it all on that but you know it's true you know we were women have been it, it's been a problem about being assertive and not considered to be aggressive or hysterical in the workplace right but you're also allowed to be more assertive in the domestic sphere i think that's also part of you know what we're getting at is that yeah. women as women we have learned we have been trained we have accepted you know some of it as you say is institutionalized some of it is learned behavior some of it is by choice but ultimately we feel that our place is in the domestic sphere where we can exert a lot more control over our lives well we might not might not feel our places there but we may feel more comfortable with the rules right about how to navigate it it's a an environment that whether we've learned this from our own families or others it's it's a more oh i mean it's different for everybody but i think it is a more matriarchal environment and we're more tuned in to the rules and how this works and it's more acceptable to be in charge totally in charge absolutely as the mother figure if you lose your nut over something 
everybody understands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's because everybody's got a lot on their plate as a mother, especially a working mother. Yeah, but I mean, no one's going to go, oh, you know, a, a work that's unacceptable. It's... <laughs> yes, maybe losing your mind at work is unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, it's, it's just a different environment, yeah. but it is an interesting one in, in that I think you're right. It does work both ways, and it's difficult when one environment is... You know, you feel much more confident in one environment than the other. Um, And so you've got to look at what the skills that you're using in one and how to transfer them into that other environment. Right. And just touching on the people pleaser at work and sort of some of the the cultural piece that goes along with that is that even though, you know, you and I, we've worked for a long time, we've worked in lots of different environments and, you know, we still have this people pleaser kind of um, streak in terms of wanting to deliver, wanting to please the higher-ups or please employees and and try and make things nice and good for everybody. I was brought up to be a good girl. That's what good girls do. They make everyone feel comfortable. And they do what they're asked to do. And it's a very difficult habit to break out of. And also, I think... um, I mean, I certainly think with my family, I find it very hard to put my own feelings first you know it's more important to me that other people's needs are met and I think you get that from having kids as well or caring for not just children from caring for others and so sometimes it can be quite hard to think about it the other way around yeah I hear that a lot I think in conversations with friends and family and lots of other women I've talked to professionally and whatever there that is definitely a common experience where we sublimate you know what we might want to do for the good of the family unit or for the good of other people well yeah because we're seeing the bigger picture and also it stops everybody whining doesn't it which (laughs) which nobody likes (laughs) nobody likes particularly me even if I have to compromise on what I want I'd rather that but yeah I think if it's very hard not to do that at work as well you Mm -hmm. know that that's your if you've got that you've had that sort of in you know unfortunately we've had that innate cultural training to be that kind of person it's really hard not to do it in the I mean we resist our training all the time (laughs) I mean we resist resist yeah we make trouble where we can (laughs) but nicely and politely and I think that anybody who's worked with me would not think of me as a people pleaser Well, um, um. Eve, do you want to comment on that? <laughs> well, luckily, we've never worked together. So, I mean, except other than this, this podcast. <laughs> this isn't work, it's fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so thinking about people-pleasing, it is a trait that is has advantages, and but it also has disadvantages. But it, it the root of it is often about a lack of confidence, or the root of it is is a desire to... Well, it is to please, obviously a desire to please. I think when we talk about lack of confidence in women, I think saying no is a really difficult one. And often it's about what the consequences of saying no is. You know, if you say no to something at home, when you, where you've set the rules, that's different to saying no for something at work. You might be worried about the consequences of what that is. Mm. And that's where lack of confidence at work really comes in. It's about... Do you feel confident in your role? Do you feel confident in... Can you manage the the fallout of you being more assertive at work? Is it just easier to carry on 
in that way. Yeah, we're not saying say no for no's sake. It's really saying no when that's appropriate, right? So it's having the confidence to say no at the right moment about the right things. And it really goes against the grain when your default position is to please or to to deliver or to for harmony. Because sometimes actually harmony comes about from people do saying no because then you you create a different conversation around it whereas that desire to to sublimate which the people pleaser has actually doesn't necessarily surface the right things that are supposed to happen and when you're at work you have to be a little more you know making sure that things are moving smoothly as best as you can and you're managing other people's expectations and deliverables and deadlines and priorities I, i mean I think what you're touching upon is that is being a people pleaser such a bad thing? I mean, we might feel that it's a bad thing, but is that your role? Is that your role in the workplace? And it might be that you just don't like that role, but you're actually very good at doing that. But maybe it's a bit too much, you know, one way for you. And maybe you need a different, a different kind of role where you feel more in control because that's naturally how you are. I think that's a great point because not everybody is suited for certain jobs. And you're right, certain people who are very good at smoothing things and making sure that, you know, people get along or they well, are, are happy, those, those are those are important skills those to have. Are great there are great people in a work environment who do exactly that. You know, the the workplace can't function without them. You might not think that the most essential person in the workplace but actually they're one of the most important people and they they really make team working well work like a team yeah but when you are then mismatched between your role and your sort of default position that is you're right that's where trouble starts because then confidence becomes a problem well yeah and i would say draw confidence from the way you deal with your home environment if that's the way this is round in the same way that If it was switched the other way, draw confidence from your work environment. Look at how you manage that and, you know, apply that in the opposite direction. Yeah. So what's really interesting um, that I'm sort of picking up from that is it reminds me of some of the research in preparing for this episode, looking at confidence versus competence. And we'll talk about this in more detail in some other episode. But there have been some really interesting studies about leadership and about how people who appear to be confident, not necessarily competent, but the confidence, we tend to promote them and push them forward because they display all the signs of confidence. But we don't value competence as much in our leaders. So I would think that what this actually says to me is if you're a mofo at home, it's because you have a sense of competence right you feel comfortable in and you know what you're about you know what needs to be done and whatnot you may have that competence at work but you don't necessarily feel the confidence that goes along with it which you should and use the competence that you have to boost your confidence Mm. I mean I wonder if this plays a little into the um that description of how women and men apply for jobs I mean, they say, you know, I read a a lot of articles about this, about how a woman will only apply for a job if she can do 85 percent, 90 percent of what's in the job description, whereas a man might not. I mean, again, look, I'm generalizing, but there's a lot that's been written about this, that that we we focus more on competence. Yep. 
and I think you're right it needs to be more about confidence because you're more than what you just produce you know it's it's about a whole skill set and I think oh I don't know I I don't know how we've quite got into this I mean there's there's quite a lot to unpack in terms of how women have got to this point but we need to have more of that confidence overall in how we approach things like it's look at the overall skills as opposed to what you you know what you can tick off on the list of things that you've done right and you know it is about sort of striking the right balance between when do you use the people pleasing skills that you have or your default behavior when is that we really need to find another phrase for people please i mean actually i mean i think there is a new term soft skills and i think that's becoming much more recognized in the workplace right and we will do valued yes and we will do an episode at some point about soft skills um because they are traditionally seen as more feminine ways of leading in particular and there's a lot to be said about that and how leadership and management um theory and and research is starting to catch up and realizing that some of those more have been traditionally dismissed as more feminine ways of leadership are actually proving to be much more effective Okay, so what 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 does our person need to do? I mean, essentially, they're probably really good at their job, but they don't feel like they are. Are we talking about, I feel like there ought to be a klaxon here, dare I say, <laughs> imposter syndrome? Well, we've got a scenario <laughs> that we want to talk about. Go on, let's read out, let's read out another Where one. Was it? So here is our letter that came in to us. I recently started a new job, but I'm finding it hard. In fact, pretty much every day I feel panicky and overwhelmed. It's a bit different from what I was doing before, and I was a bit surprised to get it, but extremely pleased because this is an industry I've always wanted to work in. Objectively, I know that I'm the right sort of person for the job, and I have the right skill set, but because the job is so different to what I was doing, I constantly feel that I don't know what I'm doing. In fact, if any of my friends ask how the new job is going, then I answer, great, but then add, (laughs) but I don't know what I'm doing. We all laugh, but this is genuinely how I feel. It's such an uncomfortable feeling, and it has really shaken me. So that sounds like this person's got imposter syndrome. Yeah, but I also think that if a younger person had written this, would we be even having this conversation? I mean, of course, when you go into a new role in a new industry, you're going to feel uncomfortable. But does it affect us differently when we're older for each role we go into? And people do, we're, I mean, part of this podcast is talking about people changing careers, people trying new things. But if it doesn't feel comfortable and you don't feel in control and you don't feel the confidence that you had in your previous role, is it going to shake you a little to the core? Yeah, that's a very good question. So let's just talk a little bit about what the definition is to answer that question. So imposter syndrome is defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud at work. So that's the key is feeling like a fraud. And so what you've just described, what I hear is, Like you go into any job, you are going to feel at sea, unsure, you don't know what's going on, but eventually you, you cotton on. But as you get older, you think, one thinks, that I can grasp this, I've seen this before, 
But it doesn't mean that as you get older and more experienced, you're immune to feeling this imposter syndrome. So when I'm when I was younger or other women I've talked to that when they were younger, they felt like a fraud because they just didn't have any experience or they just they expected someone would find them out so that they just didn't have the competencies for this job. But the interesting and the scary thing is that many, many people, men included, I think you've got a really interesting stat on that, is that through our working lives, many of us, more than I would have expected, what was the number? Oh, I mean, I uh, looked at a lot of data online about this, but the figure that keeps coming up is 70% of us would have experienced imposter syndrome at, at any one time, which for me is just just seems absolutely ridiculous that we've created this society and work culture where 70% of people have felt like a fraud and what are the other 30% of people doing are they are they harboring safe Tory seats I mean that's all I can think of they're on on celebrity get me out of here yeah I mean those are the 30% of people I mean are they have they had their emotion shit removed I don't know but it it terrifies me that 70% of people includes men and women have felt like an imposter in you know that kind of doubt in the work environment which says to me that we're doing something really wrong right right so you know there's going to be a bunch of things in there you know of course there's our own makeup but there's also there's something about training probably there's probably something about how people don't get trained properly or they get dropped in at the deep end or there's not enough education or there's not enough support you know i'd like to when we're talking about imposter syndrome i think we should acknowledge who came up with this yes so we don't forget so two women pauline clance and suzanne imes psychologists they coined the term in 1978 and recognize this phenomenon in high-achieving women. Their study of 150 women showed that women with this syndrome, regardless of evidence of their earned success, lacked internal acknowledgement of their accomplishments. And we're going to publish the link to that. But, I mean, again, that scares me. 1978. Yeah, we've been talking about this a long time. (laughs) Hmm. We've been talking about this a long time. We've been talking about women's rights, quite a long time since 1970s and before i mean there's definitely some link i'm picking up some psychic link here between the two yeah so meanwhile there's a really interesting article which we'll put a link in the episode notes um from the harvard business review the article's called stop telling women they have imposter syndrome so this is their um diagnosis after whatever it is, 50 odd years of talking about this as a particularly female problem. The quote is, but the fact that imposter syndrome is considered a diagnosis at all for women is problematic. The concept whose development in the 70s excluded the effects of systematic racism, classism, xenophobia, and other biases took a fairly universal feeling of discomfort. So this is our 70%. Yeah. Second guessing and mild anxiety in the workplace and pathologized it, especially for women. The answer to overcoming imposter syndrome is not to fix the individuals, but to create an environment that fosters a number of different leadership styles where diversity of racial, ethnic, and gender identities is viewed as just as professional as the current model. I think that sounds great. Yeah. And it touches on what we were talking about a minute ago about sort of the systemic side of it. Well, yeah. How How come so many people feel this? And I have talked to... You know, friends and colleagues, men and women, different ages. You know, 
people feel this? And what is it, you know, what, what are the things in our work culture that are making us feel like this? You know, making us not feel supported, making us feel that we can't ask for help, uh, making us feel that we, we shouldn't be in this role or we'll be found out. And that failure is not an option. Ah, well, that, that is a big one, isn't it? There is a, a podcast called How to Fail by Elizabeth Day. You know, she's a really good journalist and it's a very good podcast, but I think 162 episodes tells you that this is a subject close to people's hearts because I think, you know, it's that that concern, that worry about not failing. And I think this is what comes back to our the second uh, conundrum that you read out about that feeling of being in a new environment, about finding your feet in a new role and worried you're going to fail you know and that's what we don't we don't uh, I think as human beings we don't like to fail yeah and we're not used to it I think that's the other problem is there's not a lot of scope for us to fail and I have to say you know I'm not immune to imposter syndrome I don't think any of us is but I have learned having worked with software engineers that they are better prepared for failure than any other people I've ever worked with, partly because of their training. So when they go, you know, the, the ones I've worked with is they are taught that failure and scientists too, you know, the few scientists that I know, this is very much part of their education, which is failure is a learning opportunity. And so when you look at a failure, it's like, great, now I know I can discount that. Or this doesn't matter anymore. Oh, great, this doesn't work, so maybe something else will work. And trying to internalize that concept of failure when it's it's not something that's been part of your training or your culture is really, really difficult. And I, I admire them and I watch them enjoy failure, which was holy, <laughs> it was all new. <laughs> oh, the worst thing about this is that you know, hearing you say that is that when things don't go well for my kids and they, I mean, fails quite a hard word to use, but if they fail at something, I always say, well, you'll learn, you'll learn from it. Because in that environment, I feel that that's, you know, I can give that lesson. I doubt I would say that to myself in a work environment if that's, I felt like I yeah. would fail. Like, why am I, why am I? Why are you held to a different standard? I don't know. I don't know. So why do we hold ourselves to a different standard? It comes back to confidence, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, why do we, if we're suffering this imposter syndrome and we can, you know, we can experience it at a job level, at a, just a one situation, it can be completely situational. But like, if we are being troubled with this, which obviously age does not make us immune from it, there's a sort of a, almost a leaking out of confidence when the failure with the fear of failure comes. Yeah, I mean, I think age does come into it because I think as we get older, I actually think it's more humiliating to fail in the workplace when you're older than when you're younger. I mean, people don't expect you to know everything. I think you have to be quite confident to do badly when you're older. <laughs> it's just particularly, I mean, this is it going back to the first letter we read. If you are in life a confident person, you know, and you have good relationships and you do feel on top of your life, when you're in a work environment and things aren't going well, it might not actually be as bad as you think, but it's the audience that you're doing it in front of. You know, you just don't feel like being that person in the workplace that you can tolerate the, the shame of it. Yeah, yeah. And if you couple that with the people pleaser impulse, then you really will feel like an imposter because you want to please, you want to deliver, 
But if you fail to deliver, then the narrative in your head is to leap to, therefore, I must be incompetent. And then the confidence starts to drain away. It's kind of harsh, really, isn't it? It is, we'd, yeah. We're so cruel to ourselves. Oh, so cruel. One of the things I was looking at, there are different types of... I mean, I really look, looked into imposter syndrome. We felt that we needed to include it in the podcast because people talk about it so much. And I must admit, I was slightly horrified to discover that I suffer from it on a big scale. <laughs> and, you know, looking at the different types... People tend to divide it into things like people who are perfectionists and setting impossible high standards for themselves. Sort of the kind of super... Another one is the superwoman man who, you know, almost like addicted to work, has to achieve more than anybody else. Another one which particularly applies, you see a lot, I think, in children as well, is the whole natural genius thing, which is where... If you don't get it right first time, you just give up. Yeah, it's, you won't do it again. Yeah, you yeah. don't. You don't. It's that learning that practice and hard work makes you good at something, as opposed to just naturally. Again, failure is the threat, right? Failure yeah. is too painful. Too painful. Too shameful. And then there's others like they call them soloist, where you're someone who just you know you feel like you have to do everything basically and you can't ask for help another one is you take comfort from being the expert which sort of protects you from the work environment that you're the person who knows everything you're the person that comes to i mean all of what i'm really getting from all of these categories it's a very isolated position to yeah. be in and that's very brittle as well mm. the you know the the defenses we build around ourselves when we feel this way they f they fall very quickly yeah um and we perceive attack from everywhere which is not a great place to be There's two things that really jumped out of me is about perfectionism and I, I really struggle with this one because uh, when Eve says to me shall we do another take I always say or another recording I always say yes <laughs> because I always want everything to be perfect but I am slowly learning in life that things don't have to be perfect and it's really difficult and if people around me don't put in you know whether it's at work or home and they don't put in that extra effort I'm always slightly disappointed but I can see that that's really that's not that's really hard for people to live a, that must make people around me don't respond Eve uh, <laughs> really uncomfortable I'm just rethinking all my slapdash behavior <laughs> <laughs> but, no I mean it's it's hard because I, I can feel that perfectionist element in myself but uh, we talk about this in another episode but after writing for many 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 years I finally got myself organized and into finishing writing a novel and the only way that I finished that was to tell myself that it didn't matter how good it was yeah that the the goal was to finish it you know it just it and not to think about the feedback I might get on it and that I was just to write the best I can and work through it which was painful actually it was a painful experience but also quite liberating as well and I really I really see that oh, late in life I finally learned a lesson that I mean I don't think I'll ever get over being a bit of a perfectionist it's good but I mean there's some value in that well yeah. you know some... it pushes the rest of us <laughs> 
to work well, a little bit harder. Yeah, pushes the rest of you where to, to <laughs> madness. But if I hadn't just gone, right, that's good enough, and I am much better at doing that now, Yeah, I would never have achieved something. You're absolutely right to put your finger on the, is it good enough? And that that's a real trap to fall into, is, is to constantly say, it's not good enough. And that's where confidence lies, right? Is mm. to say, you know what? This is good enough. We can stop there. Well, and it's, it's not just it's good enough. You're good enough, yeah. isn't it? Because it go to go back to that person applying for a job who doesn't tick all the boxes of the criteria, yeah. you're good enough for this job just because you haven't done X, Y, and Z. And anybody interviewing for that job, that will come across in your experience and your personality. And rather than focusing, you were talking about competency before, we should focus and we should encourage rather than focusing on, you know, what we produce, but in how we approach problems. Again, it's coming back to a, a changing work culture. And actually, I can relate this to our previous episode on of career conundrums where we talked about um, negativity um, and we talked about quiet quitting because one of the things I read about that they were advising employers to do to to sort of tackle the stress, the burnout aspect of work that people feel was to focus people's job descriptions and outputs not based on actual production, you know, outputs in terms of producing things or achieving certain goals or sort of ticking those boxes it was more about the skills that they that they demonstrate in the workplace Mm. and how they use them and how they use them yeah that's interesting and um and that was more valuable than actually saying in your job you need to do this and this leads to people working long hours and taking on the strain of the organisation. So if things are under-resourced or financially pushed or there's management, structural problems, a lot of it gets pushed onto the employees who are picking up the slack. They feel that they have to work harder and that pressure is put on them. Right. Whereas what we should be valuing in them is not the fact that they've delivered X by Z, is the fact that they are that they're working in a particular way, they're solving problems, and therefore, in terms of performance achievement, they are. They they are achieving what they need to be done, and it's not based on how many hours you work. Or... Yeah, that's a really good point, because what you've got me thinking about is, have I ever worked anywhere where they said, let's do less work? <laughs> <laughs> because we have less resources. I think I said that earlier. <laughs> But what's really interesting is it reminds me of, you know, when you're looking at business process change, you have to always do the exercise. What do we start? What do we stop? And what do we continue doing? We always drag our heels about what are we going to stop doing? And what that's doing, as you say, is creating more and more pressure on these individuals who were very competent in their roles, you know, and still (laughs) are very competent. But because they have this added pressure, they have added work, and there's just not enough time to do it, not enough resources, they are going to start spiraling and thinking, well, the reason this isn't working is because there's something wrong with me, rather than actually, maybe this whole situation, we need to rethink it. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with you, you know, and it's okay to not be brilliant at a job, even even at the age of 40, 50, 60 or 70. If you start doing something new, you're in a different environment. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to fail a bit. 
And, I, you know, we would like to see a work culture that supports that. And do you know what? I think we are moving towards it. I think, I think it's a problem for people of our age because that has not been our experience. I've, you know, as we've gone through our work growing up, basically, you know, there's been a lot of blame culture mm-hmm. and um, people have been afraid to fail. Right. And it is, it's about creating a culture wherever you work, be it an office, a factory, it doesn't matter. But having a culture, like you say, where there's no blame, there's an openness that you can feel able to say, you know what, this didn't work out. I made a mistake. Please help me. Ultimately, it's not about blame. It's about solutions. And that's really, really important. I think when I think back to that first, that first conundrum we read out and that person who can raise one eyebrow to a kids and have them quaking in their boots and, um, but not feeling that they can do that at home. They can do that at work. You know, they, I'm not saying that they should <laughs> in a meeting, eyeball their boss and <laughs> A colleague or... A colleague. Uh, so that the colleague drops, uh, you know, drops the mug they're carrying out of fear. But they should know that, you know, if they've got that, if they've got that confidence in themselves to know where the boundaries are, what's right, what's wrong, what they're good at, they know they can apply that in a workplace. I, I, I mean, maybe it's a little woolly advice, really, but, and it takes a lot, but I think we can separate our work and home skills a bit too much sometimes i think women do that we we do have two personas yeah we think um, we have to be different in either space i mean we do to some all yeah of us need to, yeah all of us have a work persona but yeah. um and we'll probably talk more about that but i think the the skills are transferable the skills are <laughs> but the important piece though that you're hitting on is that it's not just down to the individual they need a climate in which to operate. So you yourself may be a confident person and you might achieve things because you don't suffer from imposter syndrome and you might be able to, you know, behave as independently as you, you know, as your role allows and feel very confident in that you might be the person who says, you know, I don't know, but I'll find out. Or yeah, I made a mistake. Can you guys help me? But if you're not in an environment that is conducive to supporting that, you will very quickly find yourself in trouble. You know, it's, it's just not going to work for you. So it's really important that it is both the individual and everyone they work with who supports that kind of transparency about how to, how to do things. Otherwise, you will end up with imposter syndrome in some way. What really scared me about reading about imposter syndrome, one, it can be a silent career killer. You don't even realise like after years and years of not feeling that you are good enough stops you applying for jobs, stops you applying for promotions. Absolutely. Stops, stops you expecting people to recognise you in work. Like you don't even realise you're doing it. So quietly killing your career and also bleeds out into your private life. Because Absolutely. you can be... I mean, I never even thought about this before, but you can be someone in a room with your friends and family um, or and just feel like you you don't fit in or yeah. you don't or you shouldn't be there or you know it's just really scary and it can lead to anxiety and depression and it's just oh it feels like something like a nasty disease yeah. that can just creep through and slowly eat you up from inside which i guess 
Well, that's a pretty good description, really. Yeah. Well, so I've got some good advice, and uh, of course, yay advice! Yeah. <laughs> I was feeling like we were getting a bit glum. Yeah. As part of our research, I came across Kate Leto, who is a very well-known product leadership, executive coach, author, and speaker. She's based in the U.S., and she has really great no-nonsense ways of describing this, and she's really articulate. So here are her five ways to stop feeling like an imposter. Firstly, one name it and she says really name it and draw it out too I like think, Brian yeah I think hers is <laughs> Esther Auntie Esther, Esther. <laughs> so this person is your inner critic is she calls her sister Esther and who was a very strict nun at school um, I can relate and once you name them you separate them from yourself and then they're easier to deal with so she can spot when Auntie Esther is creeping into the yeah a space yeah the second bit of advice is challenge your feelings and those limiting beliefs in real time. So the next time you catch yourself feeling like a fraud or not good enough, take a few minutes and reflect on these questions. What's the story that I'm telling myself? What is my limiting belief behind this? Is it true? What evidence or facts do I have to support it? How does this belief serve me? In other words, is this really helping me? The answer is obviously going to be no. <laughs> Am I crying before or after this? <laughs> I find this quite uplifting, yeah. actually. <laughs> well, so. you know, it is. It is. It's very good advice. Yeah. I'm just, I'd have to stop crying first before <laughs> I read it. But yeah. Okay. And then there's two more key questions she wants us to ask ourselves. What would an alternative belief be? So, for example, be daring, be creative, and think of something that's conducive to growth and happiness. So, again, it's about flipping the narrative. So, instead of telling yourself this, um, I'm bad, I'm an imposter, or so I'll get found out, flip it around. How could I grow from this? How can I bring happiness? Then the last question is, how could you test this alternative belief? What small thing could I do to try this out? And so I'm thinking back to our friend who described starting this new job and she feels like an imposter, even though she got the job. So what small thing could she do? I think reread her CV and say, I have got all the skills. Well, also, you were picked for the job and no one expects you to know everything about a job. I mean, I think it's, I, I, I do think this is hard for people who are older because you, f you feel like it's it's a bit embarrassing if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, but also Brian has been talking to you in your head for a very long time. Mm. That's the other thing to remember is that as we're older, this has been going on for a long time. So to break out of it is actually really difficult and you have to be really, it's it's painful too, trust me, I know, you know, the, to, to sort of break that connection between those two things. And it's really hard. Like Brian keeps turning up when you don't expect him. It's like, <laughs> dude, you're in my head again. <laughs> so I think as you're older, like you say, there's a sort of a shame that goes with it. That like, why am I not past this? Why have I not learned to manage this? Because mm. it'll surprise you at the at places you don't expect. Okay, so the next bit of advice is focusing, focus on your enabling beliefs. So enabling beliefs help us create positive behavior change. For example, this simple exercise helps us identify and build our enabling beliefs. It involves creating three columns. I love her. She loves a spreadsheet. I love a spreadsheet. First, list out the things that you're not so good at. In the second column, list things you're okay at. And in the last column, things that you're very good at. And by separating these things, you can look at them slightly differently. So she says, ask yourself, how does it feel to see 
while we're not good at some things, there are others that we actually excel at. So again, it's a way of parsing and organizing this and telling Brian, hang on a minute. Don't <laughs> does, tell me that I'm bad Brian, at everything. Does Brian get to fill out a spreadsheet as well? <laughs> no, Brian does not get a say in this. <laughs> He needs to be quiet. Brian and I normally discuss everything. (laughs) This is the problem. Yeah. Brian's monopolizing you. Yeah. And I think that's a great exercise. Like, I can see how that would work. And it's sort of that self-validating. It's about challenging the narrative that's happening in our heads about why we're not good enough or why we shouldn't be doing this job. And don't listen to Brian. He's not your friend. (laughs) So then the next bit of advice is phone a friend, not Brian or Sister Esther. If the feelings of insecurity are creeping in or starting to overwhelm you, call a friend for a chat, take a walk, break the cycle of negative feelings. And I like that a lot because you don't necessarily have to talk about like, oh, I feel like an imposter right now, you know, and instead it's just about breaking the connection between the story that's happening in your head, you know, that might be spiraling saying, you know, I can't do this. I'm an imposter. They'll find me out. And actually just changing the subject and going and finding someone who is supportive who can help you just re-remember what's good about you. Maybe go back to your list of what am I really good at. But I, I do like the idea of relying on a support network and finding a support network to help you work this through. What do you think? Yeah, I think it, it, can, be, it can be hard sometimes in a work environment to find people that you can talk to. Yeah, um, and maybe they're not the right person. Maybe it isn't someone at work. Uh, that's kind of what I'm hinting at, that maybe this is just going back to the person that feels like you're the one person at work and one person at home, whichever way it's working in terms of, you know, where they're the mofo. But you need to go to the environment where you feel most comfortable and seek that kind of advice. Yeah, exactly. So it's about being kind to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And then her last bit of advice is ask for help. And I think that's great. It's so simple. It's like basically don't suffer in silence, you know, and don't let it build up. Well, yeah, because don't forget that 70% of the people around you (laughs) (laughs) have all got imposter syndrome. (laughs) I mean, I just think we have to redefine what success is. I mean, you know, if everybody feels like they're not good enough, they're, you know, they're worried about failing. It's just, it just seems crazy, really. But I think that whole last point you said about asking for help, I always find it amazing, actually, when you get to the point when you do ask for help, people really want to help. They do. Absolutely. It's a sort of an untapped resource. It's always a surprise, especially to the person who's in this spiral. They they think, well, I'm not worthy of help. And it just gets them into such a mess. And you're right. Almost everybody wants to help. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's so much goodwill out there. Well, I think because actually being able to apply some practical help and do some good for somebody um, in the workplace is, you know, it's so satisfying, really. And you feel like you are doing something right for a change. Okay. Seems like a good place to leave it. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, let us know about it. We also want to hear what you've been up to since turning 40. Get in touch on our website, rightsideof40pod.com. And don't forget, follow us on Twitter at RightSide40 or Instagram at RightSideOf40Pod. All content is arranged by Eve and Caroline. And a big thank you to Terry and V. Neal for writing, performing and mixing the original music.